Hey, it's V, back from square one. Regulated, life is still upside down. And as I've been experimenting through conventional and unconventional mental health, I'm reporting back. This time, with good news. Ready to rock, drop, and roll, <laughs> so don't get burnt. The divorce, the jail, the affairs, and my attempt to swing, I mean sing. Our lives will always be on fire, so why not raise the real rays and break the matrix? Maybe this is how it starts, as we unfuck ourselves. Let's find a way out. They don't care about you, so stop giving a fuck about them. Um, thank you so much for being it. Maybe this is how it starts. Paul, thank you so much for giving me the time of day. Um, tell me your story. Who are you, Paul? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, who am I? Uh, first and foremost, I'm a father of three girls. Um, and they're kind of the, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because I think for a lot of parents, it's true. You know, they're the reason that I do what I do. Um, but I think it's also more importantly, um, it's the reason that I've chosen to do what I do in the way that I do it. Um, which is to say, you know, not that there's anything wrong with any of this, but a lot of professions, um, you know, parents do it for the kids because they want to provide a good house and a good, you know, education. And, and I want all of that for my girls as well. And I also want to model as much as I can what it means to show up in the world with a mindset of service, of community, uh, and of contribution. Um, and so I've, I've always kind of explored that uh, as, as my foundational building block, if you will. Um, in some of the more uh, conventional ways of answering your question, you know, I am, I'm, I'm, I don't have a conventional answer. <laughs> so I, I do many things. Um, and a lot of it has to do with where my curiosity and where I feel I can contribute uh, happen to find me in this current moment. So, um, <clears throat> you know, professionally, I do a lot of coaching and consulting work. I work with men one on one, I work with some couples. Um, I do a lot of uh, things in that space, mostly around mental health and wellness, but also around um leaning into what i call dangerous conversations that can take us away from some of the more traditional ways of engaging with the world but that i feel are um a more human way of potentially showing up so just to give one example i'm an advocate for learning how to become stoppable as opposed to becoming unstoppable and I don't think there are too many stoppable coaches out there. There's a lot of unstoppable coaching coaches, uh, but not too many that are stoppable. And if anybody wants to know what that means, you'll either have to ask the question or they'll have to reach out. Um, I'm also a certified death doula. And that is one of the places that is really capturing a lot of my attention these days because within the um, context of mental health, uh, which is really where I put all of my focus. I've come to understand that our relationship to death and dying in very real ways, not the quote unquote micro deaths that we talk about that happen potentially every day or whatnot, um, but that our relationship with our actual death and dying uh, is a major source of so much of our mental dis-ease that drives so many of our actions and the way we show up in the world. Um, 
so those are the primary areas where, where I show up these days. Um, I also help uh, organizations that are B Corps and sustainable enterprises um, help them with their business models and things like that. So I, I have a lot of hats, but the first two are the primary ones and the ones that I think we're here to talk about today. Absolutely. So tell me, why are you an advocate to men's mental health? What is the difference between that? How are men from Mars and women from Venus? I'm not even going to touch that last part. Um, but, but it is important to highlight that there are important differences, right? So I'm, an av I'm actually an advocate for societal wellness. Um, and um, what that means is... Uh, you know, I'm an advocate for the complex web of relationships that we as humans are fortunate to partake of. And if not nurtured and sustained and um, held in a very relational kind of way, a breakdown. And so, so much of what we're seeing now in, in, in all kinds of dis-ease and illness really is a breakdown of relationship, uh, a breakdown in the way we relate to things, a breakdown in our understanding of the interconnectedness of, of all of these things. And why I focus on, uh, on men as one of the primary areas of focus, but not the sole one, is because um, I, I personally feel, and, and this has been my experience, that um, there is an invitation that has already been extended to many women anyways, for them to explore and share and connect with their emotions, with the challenges they're facing, and to be able to, to you know, share that in community or in one-on-one -on -one relationships of whether that's formal therapy or otherwise. Whereas with men, that is very different. We are told from a very young age um, to hide our emotions, um, even today. Um, you know, while it is getting better for the most part, um, we've actually kind of seen the pendulum swing in the complete opposite direction where now it's, it's, well, maybe we, you know, didn't want to completely emasculate them. Maybe there is some value to this thing that we call masculinity and maybe we potentially want to find, I don't know, a middle ground kind of a thing or. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure that there's actually even a middle ground to be found, but, um, you know, so what I'd really like to do is through my own experience, through my own struggles is to normalize conversations around mental health and wellness, to create brave spaces for men to lean into, to start using language that invites them to be open. Uh, that invites them to lean into their experiences. Um, because at the end of the day, if I can support a handful, 30, 40, whatever the number happens to be of men to come more into themselves, should they have children, should those children be boys, hopefully they will be able to raise boys who will be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with my girls because y'all better get ready. My girls are taking names. And if you don't know how to stand shoulder to shoulder with them, they're going to eat you for breakfast. And right now, 
while I fully understand and appreciate um, the the harm and the trauma and the pain that is, has been caused and has come out of these things that we call um, toxic masculinity and this other thing that is a collection of systems, but that has been given the unfortunate label of patriarchy, um, you know, boys are really struggling to A, find models of men that they can truly look up to and B, to navigate their own experiences because right now the narrative in society is that anything that is masculine, anything that is, um, you know, of the male order is, is the reason why we are in such uh, a situation that we are in now. Um, and if you're a 14 year old boy or a 21 year old boy for that matter, and sometimes even older, um, and you're being told that everything that is masculine about you is, is quote unquote wrong. Um, what do you do with that? Especially if you don't have models to look to. So I'm not saying that I am a model that is up to them to decide whether or not I'm a model that they seek to turn to. Um, and that goes the same with the men that I work with. It's up to them decide whether or not we want to work together um, but that's a really long answer as to why I think that's important but I hope it makes sense what else can we do more as a society to really honor the personal story of a man so that this man stands balanced for your girls an example It's going to be different depending on every man's story and every man's journey, of course. But I do feel that one of the things that we um, we might want to start doing is just start thinking about even the language that we're using, right? And I've already kind of referenced that a little bit, but you know, there's some of the more obvious ones, which is to say, you know, man up as a general thing when a boy is crying uh, is a terrible piece of advice extremely damaging there we're asking that that boy eight ten whatever age he happens to be to bypass his experience as a young boy and to jump into adulthood when it comes to hard situations especially if it's emotional but even if it's physical you know the, he might he might have a, a bloodied knee that is like almost down to the bone and he's crying and man up you know is still hurt in society and again much less so today than it was even 10, 15 years ago, but it is still out there. And it's still in movies and media and things like that, which are forever. So kids are still being exposed to these kinds of things. They're still being exposed to um, toxic expressions of male aggression through things like video games and movies and all of these things. So I think those are some of the, some of the things that we can start to bring awareness to we can also start to think about, you know, one of, I believe still, one of the most important ways for a, a young person to come into contact with their physical self is through sport. It is important that we understand our physical bodies, its capacities, its, its energy and all those kinds of things. And yet we put so much focus and emphasis on winning that when we ask our son in particular, in many cases, when they come off the field, how did your game go? Even if I didn't ask, did you win or lose? Their response is almost always instinctively, it went terrible because we lost, right? 
there's an opportunity there to, to lean in a different direction and to say, well, how did you feel about your game today? Oh, I didn't feel good because we lost. Oh, well, what didn't feel good about it? Well, you know, the other team that, and if you just stick with this energy of feel, 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 he's going to, he's, he's using words and expressing himself in the non or the more difficultly measurable ways of emotion, right? Like, oh, it was so frustrating because the referee, you know, it seemed like he was on their side. Oh, and how did you feel about that in your circum, right? And and you can really, like, it's, it's not the seven levels of why, it's the seven levels of feel that I'm inviting parents to engage in with their, with their children to really have them drop into that. Right. And you can even go so far as to ask them how they felt about their performance. If you want to engage in the performance aspect, which really, you know, it's not necessarily the primary goal, but if you do, you can do that there too. You know, like, how did you feel about how you played? How did you feel about how you showed up for your teammates? How did you feel? How did you feel? How did you feel? How did you feel? Um, and, and when possible too, asking them to talk more about that. Oh, you felt frustrated. Well, tell me more about that, right? Like these are simple things and it gets them away from the transactional and the competition and all of these things, which are not in and of themselves bad things, but we deprioritize them at least to put them in equal footing with how they're feeling as opposed to the outcome. I also, you know, again, and this is a little bit of a dangerous one. So I'm sure if, if somebody's hearing this, um, you know, this is probably one of the points I'll get some contact on, but, you know, I think we need to think a little bit more intentionally about how we talk about, um, you know, masculinity, patriarchy, and these things, because they have energy behind them. Are we are all magicians and witches and wizards and warlocks? We're all these things, and our words are our spells. And we need to really think about what spell are we casting and who are we casting it upon when we use the words that we use. So if I say toxic masculinity, I am tying those two things together. They become one kind of like toxic leadership or talk and now we need we can't just talk about leadership anymore we have to qualify it it needs to be empathic leadership authentic leadership conscious leadership leadership in and of itself doesn't really hold any water in today's society because it's been it, it's been hijacked by its negative expression masculinity is similar it has been hijacked Mascul masculinity when properly expressed is not toxic we do have talk toxic expressions of masculinity however in the same way that we have toxic expressions of femininity right so instead of making masculinity toxic by tying those two words so closely together because again a 14 year old boy doesn't know how to discern between the two let's instead lean into the toxic expressions of masculinity or, or just the toxic expression, period, right? To ask them to think about what it is they're actually um, expressing or seeing being expressed. In the same way, and this is a little bit more complicated, but you know, I really struggle with the fact that we, we call this collection of systems that oppress 
and harm and and kill and um, damage entire communities, the patriarchy. Um, and I think you and I talked about this in sort of the warm-up call, but you know, if you were to 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 take those two words, patriarchy and matriarchy, and just sit with each one individually for 10 minutes and and connect with the energy that comes up and moves inside of you as you're like holding the word patriarchy in your attention most people in the world today are going to have negative reactions to that word right um and it's no fault of their own it's it's only really ever used to describe something that is inherently damaging incredibly damaging too i will say and then i ask and i'll invite people to do the same thing with the word matriarchy and if you were to go on Wikipedia or any one of these sort of, you know, quote unquote, open source uh, platforms to find the definition of the words, you're going to find very different definitions, right? And it's important to understand that those, those definitions are not the be all and end all of those words. Those are what those words have come to mean based on how we use them. But that is not necessarily the meaning of those words. And that's important. When you drill back and you go into etymology, patriarchy and matriarchy, there is not one or the other that is inherently better or worse than the other one. They simply mean, if you go back far enough, anything from first fathering to first mothering, foundational fathering to foundational mothering. Um, what are some of the other ones? The supported by the father, supported by the mother, uh, held by the, like there's the, the, the words, there's no, there's none of this talk, there's none of this evil that lives behind the word patriarchy in the etymology of the word. And again, I have three daughters, so I wanna be very, very clear here. I want those systems to at the very least change, if not be torn down. But I just wonder, it's just a question, is there not a better way to frame these systems that doesn't inherently gender them? Because when you use the word patriarchy, you are inherently associating those systems with the male and the masculine. And again, as a 14-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy, what is that telling me about my masculinity, about my maleness? I have a couple of questions. So you know, and, and that I've heard this terminology or sort of the energy or essence of what you're trying to express behind, you know, your feminine side or your masculine side for both genders, you know, when you have a boy or a man that is more softened, you know, they have access to their feminine energy or vice versa, you know, a woman who perhaps is more dominant and has access to um, their male energy, you know, and it's sort of finding this balance or perhaps adjusting this energy attached to a role or a gender um, be defined closer to who you are genetically you know is it the same thing do you feel that that sense or those definitions are a cliche or perhaps they sort of represent somewhat of the definition that you're expressing yeah so we love to define things right we love it's one of our great quote-unquote addictions 
is to define and to understand and to explain everything so that we can know everything. Knowledge being the ultimate goal. Well, here's the problem with knowledge. Knowledge is where learning goes to die. <laughs> Once I know something truly, then I no longer need to learn it. And even if you think about the things you know, how many things did you know that have shifted? And when you articulate them, do you say, well, I used to know this about this and now I don't know that anymore? No, we don't. All of a sudden, when our knowledge shifts, it becomes a belief. Well, I used to believe that the world was flat, but now I know that it's round. Huh? That's interesting. When, when your understanding was that it was flat, did you know that? You did. Okay. So this is the problem with knowing, right? It's got a, a sort of a finite point to it. We have the same problems and the same challenges with, with gender. We have decided that people who are born with certain characteristics and certain physical traits and, traits and certain biological markers, we know that they're men and we know that they're uh, women, boys and girls or whatever the case may be. And when they become anything that is a variation of those set parameters and the set standards, um, we, we get somewhat unbalanced and we, we, we feel the need to continue the labeling process by saying, but he's stronger in his feminine tree. Like, why can't Tommy just be Tommy? Right? Like, why is that so hard? Why is there a necessity? Why do we have to say that Tommy uh, is is someone who expresses himself in a very feminine way. What is, the, what is the value add to Tommy and to society in doing that? So I, I struggle a little bit with all of these things without saying that we should go completely or that we should do away with gendering altogether. But it's, it's less about what we decide for that person and more about what they choose to decide for themselves. Help them to understand all of the different pieces that are available to them in the world and allow them, if they choose to do so, to define themselves. And if they don't want to define themselves, they don't have to do that either. That to me is what we call societal wellness, right? <laughs> like this is leaning more towards that, that direction. So. I'm probably not answering your question directly, but that is also intentional because a direct answer would in fact put me back into that whole labeling process, which, which I, I don't necessarily want to put myself into. I'll also just say quickly that I also believe that it's important that um, so we understand that children who are 14, 15, 16 years old don't have their lives fully fleshed out yet, that they are still developing, that they are still maturing and things like that. So while I think it's also very, well, I think it's very important to allow these young people to define and express themselves in the way that they would choose to, I also believe that it is, I'm going to say potentially incumbent upon us to create a framework that can 
create safety for them. And what I mean by that is we're seeing a lot of transition therapy and a lot of um, other things that are happening um, with young people at, at, at earlier and earlier ages. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, and only time is really going to be able to tell us, but I'm just wondering how those young people's lives will evolve as they begin to grow and mature and, and their capacity to hold the complexity of themselves in the world evolves. Where are they going to find themselves in 10 years? Right? So, and I don't have any answers again, but I do wonder what would it look like for us as people who have some seniority in this thing called life to create safe containers for these young people who are struggling to define themselves in a world that demands that they do. Like, I'll be perfectly honest, when it comes to forms or whatever it is, you know, sex, male, female, and then now we've added all these others. Here's an idea. Do away with the question altogether. Do away with the question. Don't, don't even, and you know, we give ourselves the safety net of, I prefer not to say. Why does it even matter? Why are we asking that question, right? Like, unless, and even here, I'm not so sure, but unless you're talking about, no, I'm not sure. So I probably shouldn't even say, I was gonna, I was gonna say, so that people aren't left wondering, you know, unless you're trying to decide if the nine-year-old person whose name is Terry with a Y is a boy and a girl so you can place them on the correct soccer team, right? Um, but even then, you know, nine, 10 year old boys and girls, they're, they're, I think they're going to be fine if they're playing soccer together. Right. So, and I'm wondering if you'll permit me, um, to read a very short poem by Rainer Maria Rilke, which is going to frame, um, what I'm going to share. Um, especially as it relates to fathers of daughters. So all you dads out there who have daughters, uh, this, this is for you, but it's also for, for boys as well, but even more so for girls. Um, so this is, as I said, it's from Roka. Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the East and his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. Another man who remains inside his home stays there inside the dishes and in the glasses so that his children have to go out into the world toward that same church, which he forgot. Now, people are going to probably need to go back and, and look at that and read it again and take it. It took me a long time to take this, take this one in. And it's not an easy one uh, to take. However, in my opinion, when it comes to how I raise my girls, I do my best to be there when they need me, to provide guidance, to provide them with support. Um, more and more as they get older, it's about being there for the transactional things in, in their life that they need help with, right? Something to navigate business world, whatever the case may be. But as it relates to this poem, the first stanza of that poem is about a father who gets up from the supper table and heads to this church in the East, which is not really a church. It is where the sun rises, right? And what he goes out to do 
and why his children put send blessings on him as if he were dead is because he is demonstrating for them what it means to be of and in the world it is it is he is going out and modeling for them what it means to be in the world and they send blessings upon him as if he were dead in other words he seeks no recognition for this he is not doing it to gain the love and admiration of his children because in fact they are putting they are blessing him as if he has he is no longer a part of their life and i really feel and conversely another father could not show his you know the other father did not show his children how to be of the world how to be in the world how to actively engage with it and so it was up to them to figure it out on their own while he gets stuck behind the dishes. And that doesn't mean, guys, just to be clear, that you shouldn't be helping with the dishes at home. You actually absolutely should be, right? This is, or buy a dishwasher, but at least load it from time to time too, right? Like, this is not about dismissing responsibilities at home, but it is about demonstrating how to show up in the world in a way that um, that that is, um, community focused, service focused, and again, that models for them what it means to, to be a citizen of the, of the world. And this is particularly important as it relates to girls because they are inevitably going to seek in any partner they might look for, whether or not that person identifies as male or otherwise, the qualities that they see in you because you are the partner of their mother who they resonate much more deeply with as daughters. And so what does a partner look like for a woman? This is what the invitation is. And so really at the end of the day, it's about getting out of the way as much as you can, making sure that they're quote unquote safe as much as you can, but allowing them to have as much of an experience and a, a relationship with life and living through you at first, but then for themselves as is possible. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to give you another trigger question. You haven't had the opportunity to father a, a young boy. Would you have fathered them differently than the way you're fathering your girls now? Or do you have a 14-year-old in your life that you have the opportunity to perhaps be this male role model that you're having the opportunity to say, all right, I'm testing all my theories and I see a reaction. I see it actually working out for me, you know? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so I, I don't currently work with uh, any young men and, and there aren't any... Um, you know, boys of that age, other than friends of my youngest daughter, but I'm not, you know, she's also 13. So she's not interested in spending all that much time with boys, especially around her dad. Um, I hear a lot about these mysterious boys who are in her life, um, but uh, they never seem to make their way anywhere near where I am. Um, the first part of your question about whether or not I would do anything different. I, I I believe one of the things that I would definitely have done different because I think there's an invitation to do so is to have more one-on-one um, -on -one time about what it means to be somebody who is living in the body that you are living in. Because the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, 
I'm not so sure that those conversations are super hyper relevant. And this is just my experience at the age of, you know, six and eight and things like that. But they do become more and more relevant as they get into that sort of tween 10, 11, 12, and then certainly into the teens, right? Um, and as as someone who is in a male body and somebody who has never experienced those things, I don't even have sisters. So I have two brothers. Um, you know, it it is not up to me, I don't believe, to tell them how they should be feeling about what's happening for them in their body and what it means to be a young woman and all of those things. Um, you know, so I do, I do believe that I would have been different because I probably would have had more contact around those moments of, of, um, you know, physical transition and maturity and things like that. Um, and I probably would have had, and, you know, I'm assuming that we're talking about having one of my three become a boy as opposed to all three becoming boys or having a fourth that happens to be a boy. Um, but I certainly would have been paying close attention to the way they talk to their sisters and the way that they talk about girls in front of their friends and these kinds of things, right? Like, again, one of the most damaging things that we hear all the time, even today, even today, is when you hear a young boy, you know, bully another boy by calling him you know, a sissy or a girl, or, you know, um, there's a great meme out there that um, I think it's with the former US soccer athlete, um, Nia Ham, where it's like, uh, she runs like a girl, you know, and it's like, yeah, awesome. You know, like Mia, Mia Ham was actually Pele was once asked, who is the one football player on the planet that you don't want to go head to head with? And his answer was Mia Hamm. Like that says something. Pele, one of the greatest soccer players in history, uh, gives Mia Hamm as the one player he would not want to go head to head with because she was, she was just a complete, um, she was a one person wrecking crew. I mean, she could destroy you in attack. She could destroy you on defense. She was everywhere. She was an incredible soccer player. Um, so, as a coach, um, what are some of the differences or some of the highlights that we can navigate as being supporters of other humans, being males, from a woman's perspective, to understand a healing process of trauma when it comes to um, the journey of a male? It's interesting, so many, whether it's in community or whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, so many of the people that I work with, um, when I ask them how they came to want to do this work, first of all, they, in many cases, didn't want to, um, which leads to where this came from, which is to say that they were encouraged and supported by their partners, a uh, mother or a sister or whatever the case may be. There was a woman in their life that influenced them. And I think... In my experience, those that have actually gone through and continue to do the work are those who have been what I say and what we hear often, those who were called in by those women, not called out, not ultimatumed into doing something, right? It's, um, it's how can you create an invitation for the man in your life, for the young person or young boy, to go and explore what it might mean for them to become more embodied, to become more empowered in themselves, to get a deeper sense of wholeness 
within themselves. And, you know, you alluded to it very early on. I think it's also really important that, uh, I think this would probably be true for a lot of people, but I think it's definitely true in my experience with men that this um, desire to drive towards some kind of healing also somewhat uh, gets set aside because a healing, healing in and of itself has an end game. You become healed. Uh, and what I really encourage the people that I work with to do is to create an experience of holding versus healing, which etymologically, by the way, the two words are very closely linked, interestingly enough. But the difference between healing and holding is holding is an experience of your entire, is the experiencing of your entire life's experience, including those things that we might call trauma, right? So um, if you are looking to heal from a traumatic experience in your youth, um, you could find yourself in some sort of support system or something like that for years and years and years as you continue to get towards the healing. And in theory, by definition, as long as there is still some pain, as long as the wound is still there, then you are not healed. And so you, you continue to, to feel as if you need to con like keep going, right? Like, I got to keep healing. I got to keep healing. I got to keep healing. Um, and it can be exhausting. I personally have felt exhausted at trying to heal myself. And at one point in my journey, I, I don't even remember how I came across this notion, but I just, you know, it was a, actually, I do know that's not true. And it's coming through for me now. So your, your community is hearing it for the very first time. Um, we're, we're working, right? This is, this is, well, this is what we do. So, you know, when, when I couldn't get to a point where I could clearly articulate something that was in my memory around something that happened to me when I was young, um, I, I have a, 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 an empty space in my life, we'll call it, where most of my memories from the age of about eight to 11 are gone. I, I don't have a lot of memory. I can remember before, I can remember after, eight to 11 are gone. And with my therapist for a long time, we were working, trying to figure out what this might be. And through some different modalities, I started to get a glimmer, but I could never get to that place where I could clearly articulate. And there's a very good chance that in fact, what I'm sensing isn't even my own, that it's intergenerational trauma that is being passed down to me, that I'm getting glimpses of and so on and so forth. But at one point my therapist said, well, what would it mean if we moved away from trying to focus on the post-traumatic stress you feel into post-traumatic growth? And that is when I transitioned away from trying to heal and just focusing on the holing, which means I allow that experience to be a part of me. It is what makes me whole. It is a part of who I am. And I allow it to have its space. And then I work to try and figure out how I can make that experience in service of myself. And if I choose to, of other people because there are people I work with who have had trauma and, and traumatic experiences that they can name, that they can articulate. And while I can't do that, at least this resonance that is moving within me allows me to have a, the tiniest bit of empathy and compassion through a shared sense of what that might feel like. I am never going to claim to have 
what the experience is that they're having based on what they have, what they are clearly able to articulate should they choose to. I will never do that. But it allows me to at least have a small sense of what that feels like. Because what I feel when I think about what it is I have been able to uncover is deeply troubling. Troubling. It sends energy through my body that doesn't feel good. Um, and and I, so I can only imagine what it must be like for someone who can actually name their perpetrator or you know can remember fully what it means to be a victim that that for me and it again the most importantly for men because we are such performance and goal-driven creatures because that's how society has groomed us to be if we get on a healing journey it could be more damaging than it is supportive because how do you know when you've healed? How do you, and, and what if you never get to that place where it's healed? You get a cut on your hand. When it's healed, it's gone. It doesn't trouble you anymore. If it does, then it hasn't healed. And so I need to go back and do more work. And six months from now, if it's still bothering me, then I haven't healed. But if I've hold and I've just allowed like a scar for that to just become a part of who I am and what defines me and allow that scar to exist and allow the stiffness in my wrist potentially to, to linger and to just work within that, I can show up for the world in other ways. And I think it's definitely validating for some of us. And I think during our warm-up call, we did have the opportunity to share an experience and how I thought that the answer to my troubles was to go out and find my inner child and to find out what was wrong and see what it was. And I found it. It, it was something that took, you know, 40 plus years to find it. And I found her. But so now I walked out of a hypnosis session with two suitcase full of emotions that I couldn't shut down. And I just was not functional. And not that I needed to be functional. I could have honored those feelings. But after two or three weeks where I was leading into depression and I said, I don't want to be depressed. This already happened. I can't change the, the reality of what that was. Um, I can nurture who I am now. I can find the things that I feel are missing, but I cannot stop crying for that inner child. And I cannot go on like this. So I told you, you know, I put this, these emotions, these bag of emotions in the corner and moved on with my life. And I don't know if I'll ever address those emotions, but it's sort of, you, you have a wound, you know, you had an accident and in order to heal it, you don't need to keep picking at it to make it bleed. You're not going to heal from making it bleed. If it works best to moisturize it and to heal the wound itself and move on, I think it's incredibly honorable to do so. That will work for some, that won't work for others. Right, and and again, like, you know, you talked about putting the moisturizing, and then I wanna go back because you said, I don't wanna be depressed. And, and I, I, wanna, I wanna touch on that just quickly if we have a moment, but, you know, you talked about moisturizing cream and stuff like that. Absolutely, all of those things, and and again, if you're putting the moisturizing cream on, do so because in this current moment, it is what makes you feel good. and it's what, But don't do it with the expectation that it's going to heal that particular wound. 
because if it doesn't work out, then you're going to easily, you could easily find yourself going into shame. Oh, I did the things, but it's not healed. So I suck at healing. Um, right. Like that, especially again, as men, we love to go into self-shame and my understanding is women are, are pretty fond of it as well. Uh, self-shame is probably one of humanity's favorite collective shared, uh, habits. Um, but you know, again, can we just, you know what, like, you know, what feel really good right now, a little bit of cream. So I'm going to put some cream on no expectation about what that might do for me, but it feels good right now. And that's what I want to do. Great. On the, I don't want to be depressed piece. And I, I think you're going to already see where I'm going. I think it's really important again, back to the spell casting, right? I don't want to be depressed is a very powerful statement. Just the very notion of being depressed, you are defining who you are. Even though on a high level, you and I both know that you're talking about in that moment, being depressed is, is, is a definition of who you are. And repeated long enough and over time, it becomes the definition of who you are. And so again, if you think about the toxic, the toxic expression of masculinity versus toxic masculinity, I am depressed versus I am experiencing depression, it, it disembodies it from you. It, it takes it as something that is moving through you and is not in and of itself you. And so anytime I hear anyone say that, and that one in particular is one of the most powerful ones for me, I always, you know, even if it was 10 minutes ago, I'm gonna reel it back to that moment in the conversation and I'm gonna invite the reframe through of, you know what, I don't wanna have the feeling of depression. Of course, my question then is, well, why not? Maybe that depression has something to tell you. Maybe that, that depression, that feeling of depression is full of richness of experience. That if you have a healthy relationship with that feeling of depression, in other words, you're not letting it define you, you are not your depression. Maybe there's something to learn there. And that to me is one of the biggest shifts we can make from the mental health perspective is reframing the things that make up our mental illness, not for everyone. There are absolutely portions of the population who need medical intervention and, and will benefit from that kind of support. But many, 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 many of us, a reframing of the relationship we have with those things that we say make us mentally ill can at least be the first step towards reclaiming our mental wellness. Amazing. It's more like, you know, why am I in this state of mind and what am I supposed to learn from it versus I am it? Yeah. And Dan Harris, who's a very well-known uh, journalist and, and mental health, he wrote 10% Happier. So, Paul, we've come to the end of the hour. Um, tell us, what do you do now? I know you're an amazing coach. Where can we find you? What type of work are you leading? You know, the best thing to do is to find me at uh, on my website at Humanity. That's H-U-M-E-N ity.co or you can find me on instagram at living underscore underscore wisdom uh, so two underscores between the words living and wisdom 
And I am focusing on all the things that we've been talking about today, as well as really spending a lot of time uh, engaging in the conversation around death and dying and how that's affecting us in society right now. So thank you so much. That's it, folks. Maybe this is how it starts for you, I, and anyone else in our journey. Hope you like this content. Please follow, download, and share. Hope you had a great one. See you next time.